So, your question? What's the role of the Hare Krishna movement in the present society? You know, what's our role as, as individual devotees in the present condition of the planet? And what are some details about how we're meant to affect other people? Because we're not, we, it doesn't seem, you know, we can't be maybe necessarily the same thing that we did when Prabhupada came, maybe, because it was a different time and it was a different circumstances. So you're saying our role might be different? Maybe. Maybe, you're wondering. Yeah, what do we do now in the present situation? The way, I mean, in the context of, you know, the political situation or, you know, the environment, the economy, you know, all these kind of things. Does that mean how we interact with the society changes? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a kind of a general question. I think I understand the drift of it. It's a little abstract. But it's a good question nonetheless, and in one sense we discussed this the other day in order to get that answer. One has to understand Guru Parampara. One has to understand that Prabhupada, who brought this Gaudi Vaishnavism to the Western world, is not present in the same capacity that he was. And we discussed this a little bit. And as much as some people might not like to hear that, it's just an objective fact of life. Just like it's one thing when I'm here discussing with you in person, right? And it's another thing when I'm in Audaria and I'm still in your life and maybe you even communicate with me. But it's different, right? Even more so then. Therefore we say Nitilila Pravishta, O Vishnu Pad, Paramhamsa, Palipadakata, Esi Bhakti Vidanta Swami Prabhupada Ki Jai. What's the meaning? Nitilila Pravishta means that he entered into the Nitilila. We offer our respect to him, all glory to him, who has now entered the Nitilila. So, entering the Nitilila, then he's present in his students' lives and in the lives of their students and so forth in the line of Guru Parampara. But he is to be connected with, especially by his direct disciples, internally. He's gone internal, if you will. So the message to them is they have to go within. And he's not present, so to speak, in here and now to advise on so many details which is what you're asking about. So as obvious as that may seem, what I've just said, many people don't seem to understand it. And they want, for example, out of a sentiment that's not well-reasoned and therefore leads to the pitch of fanaticism, to have him determine that for us now by things that he said in times gone by when maybe the world condition was a little different, as you say. You follow me? So this very common sense, straightforward, right out of the book, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, that's how it works. There's no need of some or any other kind of fancy interpretation and, and, and whatnot to try to keep him in the, at the center, or not part of his, his students and so forth. This just lead to problems. If you want him in the center of this, your life, you have to follow his lead. You have to go within. And it may behoove you, maybe you cannot do that, to take help from someone who can help you go within, who is present, and who can also then advise in the practical, in the realm of preaching, interacting with the world, and so forth. That's his or her service. So. That's an important kind of detail as to how to get an answer for your question. And it is, I suppose, a, a valid question. Things do change. And in as much as the students of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the lineage of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, are bound to 
want to interact with the public to spread the good news of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's descent and his precepts and so forth, then we're going to have to take into consideration the audience, that the influences that uh, prevail and so forth, and then find a tactful way to make relevant in their mind something that is relevant, whether they realize it or not, but to make it relevant to them, to make a relevant presentation, consideration of their mindset and the influences that uh, people are under and, and so on and so forth. Of course, at the same time, there's some scope for thinking about that and asking that kind of question. And besides what I've said, a, a very general but important emphasis in terms of answering that question is to say also that the role that we have is primarily to become Krishna conscious because the interacting with others that involves the dissemination of Gaudiya Vaishnavism will only be as effective in giving as much as they have. A fellow came to me once in Vrindavan to visit with me. I was staying there and he came and he had this big plan for making a huge Krishna conscious Disneyland in Vrindavan. What was his idea? It was a huge, you know, multi-zillion dollar project. So he was telling me all about it and so forth. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I'm a small person. I have a or a much smaller idea. I'm just trying to build a temple in my heart. And I said that for a number of reasons, one of which is it's true, the other of which is that I could see that that was not his concern. In other words, he was concerned with some type of big idea, really almost at the cost of the really much bigger and much harder task of erecting a temple within your heart that Radha and Krishna will feel comfortable residing within. So... And it's our primary role, in one sense. You know, I was well known for distributing Prabhupada's books. Prabhupada was well aware of my activity in that regard, but when he was first informed of my success in preaching by one of my godbrothers through a letter, and he wrote back saying how nice what Mr. Tripari Das's services and so forth, but then he made a note there, he said, but he should be careful also to read the books. And it's not that I wasn't reading the books, but his emphasis was, of course, appropriate and something that I took to heart, naturally, that much more. So I'm also pretty well read <laughs> in Prabhupada's books, as well as you know, being known for a distributor, I'm known for being well read. And so the two really go together in as much as looking within, the understanding what it is you're involved in and so forth and applying that so it's very relevant to how effectively you'll be able to interact with the public in terms of sharing what you have. So I would emphasize that to you, that your primary role is to become Krishna conscious and that's a kind of self-interest that's in the interest of everyone else because when we serve our real self-interest then we serve Krishna. And in that way, as it's the example is given in the Bhagavatam, by pouring water on the root, the whole tree is nourished. So this is really the uh, most important thing. You have your spiritual practitioner. You should come to identify yourself as such. This is what I'm living in the world for. And the outreach and so forth should really be a natural outgrowth of that. So I just speak from my own experience of life. I think good reasoning in Scripture is supportive of that, but as a young man, I used to go through the morning program, and then I would go and stand before the deities in Los Angeles, Prabhupada's deities, and chant japa until I got a taste, until I became blissful, and then I would go out, and then I would share that, my enthusiasm, through the activity of extending the books to other people. And that would also enthuse me that much more until the point where I would go to sleep at night blissful and wake up in the morning in the same condition. So the point is then that really effective preaching is while we have to use our intelligence and think of the audience and so on and so forth, if it is not backed by experience, by realization, it will be less effective or not as effective. And you can capture somebody's intelligence, but to really capture their heart and change their heart 
and speak in such a way and act in such a way that over time, by your association, people's hearts will start to change. They'll feel the need to change. We talked a little bit last night about Sukadeva Goswami. Here's a verse from Bhagavatam, the tenth canto, telling us something about why he was effective in his speaking. He had no separate motive. Such a person is qualified to explain the Bhagavatam, can enter into the Bhagavatam. You know, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur once in his preaching in Bengal, he made a diorama, theistic number, the theistic dioramas for depicting various preaching points. This was in the 1930s, so that was like making a multimedia flash whatever, you know, computer type presentation in, in today's age. So people who come from all over to see that kind of thing. What was the preaching genius of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur? And one of the displays, one of the dioramas, theistic exhibits, was a man speaking the Bhagavatam, with like a you know like a begging bowl or something like that. And behind him was a very thin veil that you could see through. And behind it was his wife and family and and so on. And the idea of it was. Not that household men or women shouldn't preach and they can't do so purely and so forth, but what he was trying to say by that was he's simply making a living out of speaking the Bhagavatam. Not like Sukadev. What did Sutta say about him? Sutta Goswami, who heard Bhagavat in the audience with Pariksit Maharaj and then spoke it to the sages at Naimasharana. Uh, he said, Kurunayaha Puranaguyam. Among other things, he said, oh, yeah, glorifying Sukadev. Before he spoke, he said he glorified his Gurudev, Sukadev, his Shiksha Guru. He said that he spoke the secret, Purana Guhyam, of this Purana, Kurunayaha. And his motive was, he had no motive, in other words, it was out of compassion. He was giving. He was filled up with, he had nothing to get. He wasn't using the Bhagwat for any ulterior purpose to live happily. I mean, it's common in India. People will open a temple. And, oh, let's open a temple. Well, that's a good business. And people will come and tell a story that this happened here. And common people will accept it and it becomes a famous temple and the family goes on for generations making a living. It's a very common thing. At the time of Gorkashore Das Babaji Marsh, there was one fellow who was a Bhagwat reciter and he came and he set up camp. Next to the place where Babaji Maharaj was dwelling and there for three days he spoke Bhagavatam and so many people came and his actual motive for doing so was that the well-known renunciate and Avadut Gorkishodas Babaji would come and attend a lecture after all this is his life the Bhagavatam somebody speaking the Bhagavatam just nearby Naturally, Babaji Maharaj would come. And then the speaker could say, Yes, Gorkishore, he attends my lectures also. But Babaji Maharaj didn't come. In fact, when it was over in three days, the fellow who was assisting him, Babaji Maharaj asked him, Can you go and sweep that area? And he said, Babaji Maharaj, what can I do to clean that area where for three days the Bhagavad was spoken? He said, You heard the Bhagavad? I only heard rupee, rupee, rupee. <laughs> That's all. This goes on. And so the importance of building, as I say, a temple in our own heart, being kind to yourself. They say charity begins at home, so to take the practices to heart and so forth. This is the role that you have, the most important role. And as far as then the dissemination, interaction with the people and so forth. It should be such that upon seeing you and interacting with you, they want to... This was Prabhupada's idea. Like you're a household dancer, you're working and so forth. His idea was the households would be such that when they met people, people would want to go home with them. Of course, in India that's more common. You can meet a person on the train 
and talked for a while. I said, well, why don't you come by? Why don't you get down here? At least in times gone by, to some extent today too, but much more so in times gone by. People were not troubled by the need to be there in a hurry, to catch a fax, to send an email, to... Uh, all these things are invented to save us time, but they just make us have to do things that much faster. <laughs> so, somebody on the train you meet, and he's going to one place, and you're getting off early, and you make friends, and why don't you come by and stay at my house for a few days? Okay, he would go there, make an acquaintance, stay for a few days. So, Prabhupada said they should be such that the people who meet them would want to come home with them. You invite them home, and you show them how you live, and after a few days, then they, they, be, they naturally want to become a devotee. So, his emphasis was such also that really this is really effective way to interact with people in terms of sharing the gift that you have is to take advantage of, of the gift to open the package yourself otherwise of course Prabhupada started a mission following the lead of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur which was following the lead of Thakur Bhakti Vinod to take people who have Shraddha in Bhakti and organize them in such a way for missionary activities. So it became a little evangelical, if you will, in comparison to what the standard had been. There was never any preaching, obviously, was preaching, speaking the Bhagavatam and so forth, but a little bit more evangelical in, a, in an organized way. And Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsi Thakur, following the lead of Bhaktivinoda Thakur in, in an effort to serve the Thakur and make manifest his vision of Gaudi Vaishnavism going all over the world. And then he formed 64 moths, means like monasteries, sending people out, monks training and systematized how they would dress and function and so on and so on. And then Prabhupada followed that lead and did it in a dynamic way outside of India, as Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsi Thakur wanted. He once said to Thakur that he wished that he could have ten years, his life extended ten years, to preach in America. This was before World War II, after which America became the leading country in the world. Previous to that it was Britain. But the Thakur obviously had a vision of the transfer of power from Britain to America. So he made it once a request like that. And Pujapachita Marsh was quick to say that, and he got it. Swami Maharaj Prabhupada, his disciple, our Gurudev, fulfilled it, gave him ten years plus two, because Prabhupada preached in America for twelve years. So his idea was that Bhaktisiddhanta lived on in him for, you know, in those years and had his vision, his desire fulfilled. So, anyway, Prabhupada followed that vision. The idea came in Bhaktivinoda. So that's why Bhaktisiddhanta Sosthitakura used to tell his followers that we shall think of ourselves as the family members of Bhaktivinoda, the Sampradaya of Bhaktivinoda, the Bhaktivinoda Paribar, the lineage coming through Bhaktivinoda, the great luminary in the lineage uh, as far as interaction with the modern world and so forth. It stems from him. Seventh, sometimes he was called Gosami. And his work was analogous to that of the six Goswamis in many respects. Prolific he was in his writing and sorting out what is real bhakti. Like we talked last night, Sri Rupa's book begins with that, Anyabhilashita Sunyam, Gyan Karmadi Anabritam, Anukulena Krishna Anushilanam Bhakti Rutam. He wants to sort it out. What is this bhakti? There's all kinds of bhakti, ideas about bhakti. He makes it real clear. This is what we're doing here. This kind of bhakti. Uttam bhakti, he says. And it's not this, and it is this. It's not that devotion that is performed for the sake of material acquisition or for the sake of knowledge and its fruit of salvation, its service, loving service to Krishna. It's shilanam, Krishnanu shilanam. Shilanam means effort, endeavor. It's an endeavor with the intent, anukulena Krishnanu shilanam, with the intent to please Krishna. If it pleases Krishna, but that's not your intent, then it's not Uttam Bhakti. So, with the intent to please Krishna. And the verb Shilanam, like all verbs, it implies emotion and action. It consists of Cheshtarupa, Rupa. It consists of actions that promote emotions 
and actions that express emotions and emotions themselves. So in sadhana bhakti it consists of actions that seek to promote emotion, bhava, like the hearing and chanting, chanting and dancing. These are with a view to promote emotion and then they manifest in the realm of ecstasy, in the realm of emotion, from sadhana bhakti to bhava bhakti. Hearing and chanting, dancing and chanting in bhava bhakti is the expression of emotion. And then there are sattvika bhavas and stai and sanchari bhavas and so forth. So this is a wonderful verse that explains the seed of the whole book of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So he sought to define what was bhakti. So similarly, Bhakti Vinodhakura, like I say, a seventh Goswami was defining what is the teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? What is pure bhakti at a time when there had been much confusion about that, was, was out and about? And then as the Goswamis established the places of Krishna's pastimes in Vrindavan, he established the places of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's pastimes in Navadvip. In Vrindavan and Navadvip, they are one and the same. He found the birthplace. He realized the birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He said, it is here, not over there where there are just making money out of a place that they've claimed to be the birthplace, but it's not the birthplace. And neither then was it set up the actual birthplace for making money, but we formed a mop there for going out and giving wealth to everybody all over the world and so forth. So anyway, we are in the Bhakti Vinod Party, but his vision probably used to say my movement is a movement of Bhakti Vinod. I'm just following the vision of Bhakti Vinod. As it was shown, given shape by Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur. So I'm also taking that and giving it shape and spreading it in a dynamic way outside of India and new circumstances and so forth. And he did so with great success. So beyond the fact that, one, in order to know what to do now, as I pointed out, we have to have a leader who knows what to do. <laughs> Huge point. Don't want to minimize that one. That's the one I began with. We have to have a leader now. And we have to have such a leader that we are confident that that leader is as capable of advising us how to preach and spread Krishna consciousness as Prabhupada was, or as Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur was, or as Bhakti Vinod Thakur was. And if he is, then he's going to be saying things often differently than they said things, apparently, because he is going to be aware of the time, the circumstances, and he is going to be acquainted with the substance of the material that's to be distributed. And in pursuit of that, he will change the presentation to fit with the details of the time and circumstance, make it dynamic, make it alive. One of the things about the circumstances right now is that there are many thousands of devotees, and they are in many different states of disrepair. I guess you could say. And um, that wasn't there when probably we were all like, it was a small group comparatively, and we were all pretty much on the same page. Now we don't, we don't find that. There's a lot of confusion and difference, and these people bicker and, and so forth, and they make websites just to fight with one another in the public, you know. <laughs> so it's pathetic, but that's a different circumstance. So one of the things that qualified person is going to be concerned with is that, dealing with that. So there's considerable scope for preaching, if you will, to the devotees in ways that weren't required when a prophet was here, which means also that there has been more theory of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that's out and about. And I said this the other day, and it's worth repeating, that when I was initiated by Prabhupada. There's no comparison to the amount of theoretical knowledge of Gaudiya Siddhanta that I had at that time to the amount that my students who initiated from me have now. And oftentimes before I even talk to them. In other words, it's just out there. Reading books and gathering information here and there. And I mean, they come to me with a whole lot of interest in, knowledge of, understand some of it's skewed and whatnot, but still they know so much that we didn't know those things. And we could go out and you know, rent a house and cook a vegetarian feast and call it a love feast, and it was free. I mean, before I joined, if you could find a free meal somewhere, that was a cool thing. 
It wasn't like you were a homeless person. It was like, yeah, food should be free. <laughs> food should be free, right. Yeah, you go to crash pad and somebody's ready to feed you. Why isn't the whole world working like this? Yeah. This is how we thought. It's not exactly like that now. So the love feast was a phrase coined for the you know 1960s and 1970s and so forth. It made a lot of sense. I don't know. It makes as much sense right now to somebody. Love feast, you get a free meal. Free meals are more identified with homeless people who can't get a meal. It's not really like a hip thing to do or what should be done. So then this is what you're saying. These things have to be thought out. And a qualified person is going to experience the fact that people are coming with a whole different background. We could go in those days, rent a house, have a love feast, tell people about reincarnation, vegetarianism, and you're not God. The simple logic that you're not God. Isn't it preposterous? How could you be God? And they would go, yeah. And then you have your foot in the door for something that's so important to establishing shraddha in bhakti, in a simple way at least, dismissing the mayavadi If they get the foot in the door for that, uh, it's very difficult. You get them in the theistic door. And then people would be joining. Right now. We're in a house, advertised Sunday love feast, and just tell about reincarnation. And, you know, some people may come. But the fact of the matter is that there's a lot more out and about there about Eastern philosophy, Eastern theology. Yoga is popular everywhere. You know, when I joined, well, to speak of yoga, yogurt was practically a bad word. <laughs> yogurt? What's that? Some weird thing? I'm serious. So, yeah, things have changed a lot. And that's one of the changes, that there's a lot more information about Gaudiya Vaishnavism out and about. So if we are then to interact with people and talk about it, we have to know a lot more about it. So again, this is my emphasis too, the essential person who's leading preacher, he has to know or she has to know a lot more theory. Not that Prabhupada didn't know, but he didn't have to explain as much theory to be effective in the time that he was. And if you read his books, you'll see many things about Gaudiya Vaishnavism there in a code, in a way, you don't, unless you have the bigger picture, you don't know exactly what it's referring to and so forth. But if you come within the whole corpus, the whole canon of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, you find, oh, that's what he's talking about in this verse. This is explained in this book or in that book, or this Goswami or that Goswami. Because Prabhupada's claim to fame, as he would say, his credibility derived from the fact that he followed the previous Acharyas. And of course, they were able to represent it in a fantastic, you know, dynamic, living, compelling way. And so you have to have realization that it enables a preacher to make a dynamic presentation. And there's a need for dynamic presentation. There's a need for more theory. So there should be an emphasis on your practice and your purity and the gathering of more theoretical knowledge, sambandagyan, theoretical sambandagyan of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that will also serve to fuel your practice help you understand what you're involved in. And then there's the details of, well, like you were saying, there are things that are important to people now. And there's an environmental issue, so it's debatable. Is there a global warming or is there not? And You know, those are details that it's probably good to be informed about, and we have a strong leaning towards some type of qualified industrial civilization. It's not going to end. It's unlikely that it will end overnight. But we tend towards a more, with regard to that, for example, it's good to emphasize, as Prabhupada did, communities, self-sufficiency, and so these things are attractive. And they make sense whether the world warms up or not. They make sense because they foster a kind of lifestyle that tends to be more conducive. It slows things down, brings you closer in touch with uh, nature, and, and uh, that's conducive to spiritual practice, whereas the industrial society is not as... It's an unnatural kind of lifestyle. And, uh, so, probably good to go along with that kind of propaganda, and it may be true for that matter, that the world is warming or whatever. Krishna's an environmentalist, so I would be too. We say a prayer when we get up in the morning, the earth that forgive me for stepping on you 
with the implication being that, that I ever step be only in the service of Sri Krishna so that I won't be a burden to you. These ideas are ingrained within Gaudiya Vaishnavism, so to just go and pollute the river or whatever. And this is not the kind of way in which we are taught by the founders of Gaudiya Vaishnavism to look at the natural world. I mean, we're not exploiters of the natural world, and we are against all forms of exploitation. And so I think that it is good then get real specific, because I guess what you're really asking about is it's good to um, to be a devotee in this world. It's good to be identified, I believe, with a broader group of people who are reasonable but alternative in their outlook to life. When I was forced by circumstances to leave ISKCON, I reasoned that it would be wise to live in alternative America, where you could be a Swami, and it would be acceptable. Just like there are people that I meet, we were in Nashville looking for property, so I would like to buy a couple hundred acres and have a community there. And so the realtor, who I happened to meet by chance a couple of years ago when I started thinking about this, she's a vegetarian, as it turns out, and you know, I tell her my name, she's so Swami, oh, nice to meet you, thank you. And then when she took us to see a property that was being represented by another realtor. She introduced me, this is Swami, and so forth and so on. And, and then um, later on he said, well, how'd you like it, Sammy? <laughs> so, I don't mean to criticize the man, but my point only is that there was a lady who the word Swami was something she was familiar with. And this other guy didn't even know, is it Tommy? Is it Sammy? Is it Swani? And some people you say Swami, you know what it is. So I think that that is a wide kind of group of people that you can, uh, and it's getting bigger, and some of their ideas and thoughts have come to mainstream, just like environmentalism has come into the mainstream. And you even have Christian fundamentalists now embracing the environmental movement, which for years and years they saw it as the work of Satan, earth worship, and totally against it. There's been a split in the fundamentalist Christian community over this. Some people have come out and decided that the Bible says that we should take care of the earth. And I saw one guy lecture and he said, of course, it's not Mother Earth, but Father God's creation or something like that. Anyway, he had some way of putting his spin on it so it would fit a little better with their theological take, but that's huge. They don't get any further to the right and to have embraced what was seen as, has always been seen as such a left-wing kind of idea. This isn't indicative of the extent to which that idea has come into the mainstream of America. What I want to say is that there's a growing group of people who are alternative. Now, that's not what we've done, that we buy into everything that they believe in and so forth. There's many things that I don't agree with, but you can't be always telling them that you're the only way and that they're absolutely wrong and they're just in Maya and so forth. They're nice enough that they'll tolerate you anyway. You have to be a little open. You know, your faith has to be such that you can interact with other people without having the need to convert them on the spot. And that's kind of a weak, weak faith. So, I recently just as I say years ago, so I began to write because at that time they wouldn't sell me Prabhupada's books to sell to other people, so I began to write because so I knew we needed books. And I began to write to that audience and develop a language and so forth that would be one in which they would be better able to hear, I thought, about Krishna consciousness because this gun was largely preaching to mainstream America, although many of the members were alternative in their background. Prabhupada kind of like took us right out of that alternative background and the downside of it. And of course it wasn't as developed at that time. It, it largely meant, well, it was unclean and it was filled with substance abuse and so on and so forth. He kind of took us out of it in a way. We kind of became more mainstream in some respects, even. And there were different reasons why he did that and how he did that and so forth, in terms of trying to cement us in faith and spiritual authority. But anyway, things have changed and you know, many devotees have roots in that type of alternative culture to America anyway. And, you know, people come to us from that. And so 
So I think it's good to identify with that sector of society to some extent and many of the ideals that they have correspond with ours and so there's some momentum there and you know if you're going to live in the world then it's nice to be able to be a devotee and be able to say my name is such and such and people don't have a problem with it and to be able to work and not have to be this like you know Clark Kent and Superman Superman at home and Clark Kent at work you know there you are, you're just a clerk or an editor or something, whatever he was. And then you go home and, you know, on the way home, jump in a phone booth and put on your dhoti. <laughs> Come home, here I am, really. So, uh, yeah, something to think about like that. And if you want to preach to the public, then, like for myself, I live in a monastic community that's largely self-sufficient. I mean, we're off the grid, everything is solar power and grow our own vegetables, and have our own milk, and so forth, and we don't have the luxury of growing grains at this time, so people bring us grains from our community. Our main industry is my preaching, books, lecture CDs, and so forth, which economizes the place beyond our natural production of foods and flowers for the deities and whatnot. And people hear about it, or people come there, and to be honest with you, it doesn't matter what I say, and they think it's spiritual. That's identified as spiritual to be living in that way. It's like, wow, they did it. They're actually doing it, and we're just talking about it. So it's, it's very attractive. And Prabhupada was interested in self-sufficient communities for the devotees. He even said that it was 50% of his mission to establish such self-sufficient communities. So I think that that's a good idea. A lot of thought how to do that exactly, how to organize that. Well, anyway, I have a lot of ideas about it, but what I see is that people who are a little bit receptive to start with, there's a whole lot of people like that. So why not preach to them? <laughs> and instead of people that have no mind for it at all, you can preach to anybody and everybody, but at least in that world, you'll have an ear. And the very lifestyle that you lead would be compelling. But to speak of what you have to say at the same time, we should have something to say. So I think identifying with alternative culture to a large extent is a good idea. And the values there, of course, you're not going to identify with all of them, but with a good number of them, they're wholesome. And there's a lot of things to be said. I mean, you ask a question that, as I said in the beginning, requires the idea of guidance and that should be ongoing with regard to details, time, place, circumstance. And so what's our role now? In one sense, our role when Prabhupada was here was to establish Gaudiya Vaishnavism as a force to reckon with. And so Prabhupada engaged us in what I sometimes called spiritual terrorism. We terrorized the public to get their attention and therefore in that phase, Prabhupada said things like, any publicity is good publicity. That's how Yasser Arafat, he was the original leader of the PLO, and that was their strategy in the beginning, that the Palestinians had no voice. That was his determination, so let's give them a voice, and any publicity will be good publicity. So they engaged in terrorism, and they got publicity. And by getting publicity, suddenly they had a platform a big platform. Some people paying attention to them. They're terrorists. And then they, then they start to say, why we do it? Why we do what we do? And, and so then the whole cause got out. I mean, I'm obviously not a supporter of terrorism, but that was the strategy behind it. He felt there was no other way to get attention to his cause and the plight, as he saw it, of the Palestinian people. So, therefore, he ends to get that in the ears of the world and get support and so forth was justified. The means was justified by the ends. That's how we thought. So Prabhupada felt that the means would be justified by the ends. And he saw a limited amount of time he had. He didn't know if he'd be able to complete the Bhagavatam, he said himself. Therefore he packed so much in the first three volumes and came with that. And he was, what, 70 years old or so when he came. and. His heart condition was not good, and so he wanted to somehow, you know, it was called Hare Krishna Explosion. It was like dropping a bomb in the Western world, and 
some of it was colorful and good and attractive and some of it was not that attractive but it got people's attention and then Prabhupada said things like we got bad publicity for example selling books in airports and representing publicity as good publicity but that's a phase like for example we went out and sold books on the streets not a necessarily a bad thing but it's not the American way of doing things it panders things on the streets it's lower class people or fanatical people it's kind of how it's looked at in this country if you want to buy a book you go to a store and you buy a book and you pick out the book that you want and if you want to sell a book you get it published I mean there's always some place for grassroots and going out and, and so forth and I think there's a way a respectable way to do that and it's not exactly like we were doing it in the past and I think that the devotees that do go out and sell books are a little different in their approach I think there's some place for it but I mean, we at the time we had a whole army out there and there was a purpose behind it. First of all, the selling of the books was funding the expansion of the movement and bringing money for publishing more books and so forth. So all that kind of thing should be thought about and adjustment could be made so that the presentation makes more sense and is palatable and, and so forth. I think there was a phase for spiritual terrorism and then after, look at the, I use Yasser Arafat as an example, he was a terrorist and he became a statesman. He became a statesman, a politician, and he could meet with heads of state and so forth. And so the objective is not to be a terrorist your whole life, <laughs> but to assess the field and see that, okay, now this we can phase this approach out and become established and so on. Some scope for that, perhaps. And that involves, like I said earlier, educating the devotees more about Bodhi Vaishnavism, deeper and perhaps see the importance of their being in balance psychologically, socially in well integrated and all those things. Does that help at all? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a general response to a general question. How much should we expose ourselves to hearing about like, political issues and things like that? And what's a healthy reaction to it? Because the, the political situation is pretty radical nowadays. Well, I think the level that one should be informed about such is relative to the circles in which one moves and the extent to which one is involved in preaching. I know that, for example, one time Bon Maharaj was advised by Sridhar Maharaj, if you want to preach, read a newspaper. In other words, find out where people are at, what's going on, and then you're going to enter into their world from an angle that makes sense to them. Now, someone can say, well, when Sridhar Maharaj read the paper, it was like reading the Vedas. So that doesn't mean you just go read the paper and say, see, it's just like reading the Vedas. It, you have to be a Sridhar Maharaj to read the Vedas and interact. And so so there's an extent to which you can interact and be informed, and it's just a total distraction. Just put so many things on your mind that are not necessary, and that's what you think about when you chant Japa. So it little depends on where you are in the whole thing, whether you are in a preaching engagement, whether your guru has engaged you in that, in the front lines, so to speak, or whether he hasn't, and, and whether you can digest information and always find a way to take the information, but you take it to a Krishna conscious conclusion, you're always looking at it from a Krishna conscious perspective. That kind of person can absorb as much news or information as, as he or she is exposed to or wants to. But not everybody can. So you have to tell your temperature a little bit and see well, the extent to which you check in the news is the extent to which you're not chanting your japa attentively. Because you don't have to tune into it at all to be Krishna conscious. That's also there. Right? You kind of have to tell your own temperature a little bit and see how the extent to which you're penchant for being informed and, and having a sense that without knowing about the world, I won't be relevant, I won't be up to date, I won't know what's going on, how much th that weighs upon you. So you say, if you come to the, live in a monastery, then for a while you think, to what extent is what I'm doing relevant to the world? But if you keep on there after time, it, it changes and you think, to what extent what the world is doing is relevant to my life? You don't have to listen to it at all. And you could probably do fine also talking to people 
by saying I'm not into politics. I never talk about politics and religion. That's what I tell people. <laughs> <laughs> and some people go, that's cool. Yeah. I guess you have a group of people that are very politically informed, and then you have a mass of people that aren't politically informed. And the people that are politically informed are more concerned. Oftentimes, their sense of self is more expanded and less contracted than the masses of people are who are just concerned about taking, getting. And if they're going to vote, it's only going to vote on because where's good for them, and they're just concerned in their own little world and so forth. And then you have more blossoming consciousness where people are concerned about the world and the state of affairs and maybe identify with people who are less off than them and, and how to make it better and, and, you know, in all respects and so forth. And to the common person, not being politically informed is not going to be a big deal. To a more intellectually developed person, to relate with them, then to be a little bit more in, in touch with that arena would seem more significant. They might expect that. And of course, Krishna consciousness is taking it beyond that, beyond ultimate concern. Krishna consciousness is the full expansion of the self. The self is contracted by selfish concerns, concerns for merely for indulgence, and it's expanded, but to the extent that we become selfless. The full expansion of the self, as big as you can become, that's Golopandavan. That's as big as the soul can become. I'm a big guy. Sridham says, and I can take you on at any time. And sometimes he either defeats Bhagwan, wrestles him to the ground. This is as big as the self gets, you see. Fully expanded sense of self. And it's all caring. That's Goloka. It takes everything into consideration. It's a state of, a country of love. That's what it is, country of love. All caring, all kind, full of compassion. So again, the extent to which you need to be informed about those things, you, know, you kind of got to tell your own temperature. And you've got to look to see that whatever you're doing is fostering your spiritual practice first and foremost. So that your bhakti can become developed. It can start to become really love rather than hate. A lot of times in the name of bhakti, it's just hate. We're just mean. In, in other words, we cannot see the universality of our deity. And so anybody who doesn't worship our deity exactly like we do, with the same words and the same dress, and we're against them and so forth. This is, you want your bhakti to grow. So there's no set answer to your question how well we should be informed about things, but I've given some general ideas how to think about it. Think about your own spiritual practice first. I mean, you know, you cannot turn on television or the computer or news station for months and nothing's going to change that much. That's also true. Same thing will be going on, a different nuance. I mean, it is, it's also just a form of entertainment. The news has is, is become an entertainment. Whether it is informing the public, it's just, you know, they just go over issues over and over and over again to the point it's just, it's just pathetic. And then the issues that they give prominence to it and so forth are often not worth it. So you can tune out quite a bit, I would imagine, and you wouldn't miss much. You know, you can subscribe to the headlines or something to get an email important things will come, and 90% of those won't be very important. But, again, if you're dealing with educated people and all, you want to be a little informed. And but you began by saying that the world is such a terrible place, and there's another way to look at that. It's a happy place, actually. All facility to serve Christian. Many, so many, the wonder of everything the jewel, everything waiting to be excavated by drawing the connection between it and Krishna. We're like miners looking for valuable jewels. Make the connection between all things and Krishna consciousness. And then you see it for what it is. Because maya means to see it as not being connected. And it is connected. And Krishna is wonderful. So when you don't see that, then it's a fearful place, a dangerous place place to want to get out of. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had no desire to leave. Mama Janmani Janmani Shvare Bhagavatad Bhakti Rahayatikitwe. So the enemy is what? When does he say that? Nadanam Nadanam Nasundaram. I have no desire. Suddenly the world has no longer become a fearful place to me. So why was it fearful? Why did I have that perception of the place? Because I had desires in relation to the world and I was taking. So when you're taking from the environment and exploiting, 
then it's not going to be very friendly to you. When you see everything in relation to the small world of your mind and how it should be used, when in fact everything belongs to God, then you kind of take the life out of things. Like your mind is dead, it's material. So by seeing things in relation to your mind, you don't see the connection between the thing and its spiritual origin. So you don't know how to make the best of it. It's not going to be friendly to you when you misuse it in that way. People, things, and so forth. If we don't see our wife as, you know, if we see her only as an object of exploitation to take, she's going to go along with it for, to some extent, perhaps, but she's not going to feel comfortable, or vice versa. People, kids, animals, the natural environment, and so forth. So, I have no interest in taking from the world, and suddenly I find there's no need to leave the world. It's, it's left me alone. It's no longer unfriendly. So, what's unfriendly? It's only us. We're not seeing the world in relation to Krishna, so naturally it's showing us a face that's fearsome, antagonistic. But we're the antagonist. So that's the idea of Krishna consciousness, to convert the world, which means to convert your own, you know, to look at it from a different angle of vision. Not so easy, but that's what you have to do. So, what else? Yes? I was thinking about something that you had said a while back. Rendering anonymous service to the Guru is kind of indicating that that in some way is higher and we don't expect any kind of um, recognition in return for our, our services when we can just do it in that selfless way. So my question is, if pleasing the Guru is the way we make spiritual advancement, and the Guru isn't aware of what we're doing, then is that coming through the super soul or seeing that and understanding? Yeah, but the idea there is that I render service without desiring recognition in a material way. I don't want to contaminate my offering by wanting to be known for how great I am for doing it, something like that. But naturally, of course, we want that our service will be accepted. But we are also taught that if we do it without motivation, that it is pleasing and it will be accepted. So it doesn't go unnoticed. It certainly doesn't go unnoticed by Krishna. And he certainly makes the Guru aware. And he can tell. It's very easy to tell if someone is giving without desire for recognition in comparison to one who is dependent upon that or attaching that. And wanting to be known as a big devotee and and so forth. Tishta is like garlic, you know, it's if anybody eats it it's like, wow, that guy just ate a chunk of garlic. <laughs> the only one that can't smell is the guy that ate it. <laughs> That's what it's like. You can't tell. <laughs> and you can't tell him about it. He can't smell it. So the idea of that is a way of talking about pratishta and a need to forego that. And uh, I've said before, it's been said that pratishta is like the stool of a pig. The implication is what? That pigs eat stool, what their stool must be like, how much it should be avoided. Whew. It's very unbecoming. And because pratishta, Krishna holds the supreme pratishta, the supreme position. He's the pusher, he's the sustainer, he's the... Maintainer. So that's why all Gyan Karmadi Anabritam Rupa Goswami says our bhakti should not be covered by any kind of pushing, any kind of wanting to take from the environment, to the power of knowledge, the adi, the power of yoga and all these. Karma is power. Material acquisition is power. You have money, you have standing on a higher planet, you have a house, you have your kingdom, you have your so so forth. This power, it's a kind of power. Knowledge is a kind of power also, subtle power, but it's higher even and more powerful. Yoga, power comes from yoga. All these are ways of getting power. Like I told the other day, a fellow I was preaching to once, I joked with him, I said, well, he had long dreadlocks. I said, you know, well, if you join us, then our enunciates all shave their head. And he said, all my power is in my hair. And I said, you see, it's not about getting power. Spiritual life is about acknowledging 
the one who is powerful. Just the opposite of what you're thinking, sir. And what power do we have? What is the power of yoga to attract Krishna? It's a plaything. It's like the power of a child compared to a, you know, who builds a little house out of blocks and, and somebody else is a contractor or an engineer. It's just childish. Krishna's Yogeshwar. His, his power of yoga it makes any yogi look like a child in comparison. These things, power of knowledge, the power of material acquisition, the subtle power of, of yoga, has no capacity to attract Krishna. Because he's all-powerful, that's the whole idea. So if we try to overpower him, that's what these are all our attempts to overpower, really. To approach by force, you will be repelled. It's completely unattractive to him. He's all-powerful. And you're coming with some force to try to enter there. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> it's ridiculous. You're going to show me your power and, and you think you can come in here now and, and be somebody? You're somebody? It's all about being somebody. Yoga, Gyan, Karma. It's all about being somebody. Even yoga, Gyan, it's about being somebody. It's about being, well, being God, in a sense, in a subtle sense, in a more sophisticated and philosophical sense than being God or the controller in a karmic sense. All these are about exerting power and trying to approach God through a power move. That's why Golok is described with the tridents and so forth on all sides and all the mystic powers personified around the circumference as tridents keeping the yogis out and other such people. This is one of the implications of that kind of mystic explanation in books like Brahma Samhita and so forth. Because he's all-powerful, one should reason that trying to approach him through power is not possible. But if I acknowledge my powerlessness, that has its power. In other words, a negative pole magnet will attract a positive magnet. But two positives repel one another. So bhakti is an effortless effort. The perfection, in one sense, of the imperfect is to acknowledge their imperfection. Then, that's the real beginning of their progressive life. So you see, bhakti is all about that. It's all about moving in the opposite direction. And it has a subtle power to attract the all-attractive, the all-powerful. It's so powerful that it becomes conquered by that, captured by that. Everybody's pushing at me. <laughs> and it's ludicrous trying to be powerful in one way or another. These devotees, they're acknowledging we have no power, we're dependent upon him. This is the constitution of the jeev. It's dependent forever. No matter how highly liberated it becomes, it's a dependent entity, dependent shakti. This is fully emphasized in bhakti. And then the example is there. To be like a, just like a, well, like a child, like a young girl, can capture the attention of the big powerful king. He's going to go out and conquer the whole world. But she says, Daddy, please stay home today. Could you? All right. Put the whole thing down. <laughs> it's something like that. Prophet once gave that uh, example. So bhakti is an effortless effort. It's an effort to stop trying to make an effort to be somebody. It's hard enough to be somebody, but it's harder to try to be nobody, to acknowledge that you're really nobody. And the wonderful thing is, <laughs> the extent that you can become aware that you're a nobody is the extent that you actually become somebody. Because that's true. That's the reality. And Krishna consciousness is about being honest. So when you realize, I'm nobody, Krishna says, yes, you're getting it. <laughs> you're starting to get it. Okay, I want to talk with that guy. <laughs> That's natural. It's not confused anymore. You're understanding, right? And suddenly, Bhuktaram Jagatapasam Sarvaloka Maheshwaram. He who is the owner and controller of everything, Suridam Sarvabhutanam, becomes your friend. You don't have to own, you don't have to control. You can be the friend who's of the person who's the owner and controller of everything. Your position is so much better. You have nothing to worry about. 
And this is how we're busy, trying to own, trying to control and secure power, to maintain our sense of self and so forth, which is impossible. The sense of self, material sense of self, it's here today and gone tomorrow. So, so this is surrender, give in, you wave the flag, that's it. I give up, Hare Krishna. That's what you fold your arms, Hare Krishna. And give up. That becomes attractive then. This is bhakti. To try to be a, you know, be a nobody. Das, das, anudas. Further down we can get, the higher our position becomes. In the material world it said you get ahead by stepping on the heads of other people. And in the spiritual world you get ahead by having your head stepped on. If we're always putting our head on the ground, where the people's feet are. That's how we progress. <laughs> but this is against the grain of our material conditionings. It takes so much philosophy and whatnot to convince us you're nobody. And it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Because as much as you understand you're nobody is the, much the extent to which the one who's really somebody comes into view. And he's friendly. And why he, he didn't seem friendly? Because, well, you're trying to be him. <laughs> Something like that. This is some of the logic of bhakti. So, you see, bhakti is entirely different. It's categorically different from yoga, gyan, karma mark, all these other things given in scripture. It's categorically different. There is some resemblance in some aspects and so forth and what the different paths agree upon and acknowledge and so forth. The very nature of the approach of bhakti is very different. And the nature of the approach in other marks is such that it creates a sanskar that is not favorable to bhakti. It creates a sanskar for being somebody, for having power and, and so forth. Yes? Maharaj, you know, like um, our discussion all about preaching, well, I find that sometimes we're so afraid to do the wrong thing, so we don't do anything, and we don't preach at all, because we might do it wrong. And like we said, like book distribution, it's considered low-class to approach people in a parking lot. So then I don't do it, but actually, you know how it's such a spiritual exchange, even in a parking lot, because you meet those people who are attracted somehow. They're grateful. I know personally, myself, and I think in general, we are so afraid of doing the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Better not to do the wrong thing. Yeah, better to do something and learn from your mistakes. And I think that with regard to selling books, a lot of devotees have learned how to do it better than they might have in the past. So even though you may go to a parking lot and sell a book, you probably have a sensibility about how to do it that's a little different than when you did it 25 years ago or 30 years ago. And so that's good. Like I said, there's a better way to do that, that a mature person can understand and, and, ex and have, who's had experience for so many years selling books and the problems. And You know, it was pretty wild out there years ago. And you know, there was a philosophy in ISKCON at the time with regard to selling books that it's better that the guy or the gal who buys a book from you hates you after buying it as long as they bought it and gave money and got the Sukriti it's better for them than if they just went away and didn't get anything so you can just beat people up and steal their wallets and say Hare Krishna you know and they're better off than if they never met I mean, and that's extreme but it was like that that was kind of the philosophy they would get some Agyata Sukriti if you stole their wallet, I mean, I never stole anybody's wallet, but there were people that went and held up liquor stores and took the money and thought it was better for them because they took the money and spent it for Krishna. They have no idea that bhakti is anukulena krishna anushilanam. You know, this has to be rendered with the intention to please Krishna. The guy that gets his money still out of his cash registers and <laughs> really isn't doing any bhakti by that. And Anyway, so that, these are extremes. So I don't think that you think like that when you go out in the street and sell books. So that's what I mean is progressive. It's true, like I said earlier, that in America to see people selling book on the street or in a parking lot is kind of not the American way of doing things. But I think if people meet people there and have a nice exchange with them, that it's fine. And there's a way to do that. And I think it's what Prabhupada would have expected of us to do it like that. You know, like Mitra Singh was telling me the other day, he sold a Bhagavad Gita to somebody, 
came out of the store and then his he, he didn't have the money or something, but his wife wanted the Bhagavad Gita. He didn't want the book, but he said, oh, my wife just got back from India and she's okay. into all this stuff, so I'll get the book for her. He made him five dollars and then went off and she got the Bhagavad Gita and was so happy to get it that Mitra gives a little card so yeah, so see it's, it's a whole different thing when Mahara for example and Mitrasani go out and sell books they put in their name on the book and they want to be contacted and at times gone by devotees would sell a book and hope the guy wouldn't find him you know <laughs> get us for his money back and wring his neck you know or something <laughs> we did what we could in those days but um so, all right, I think we'll stop there. Thank you all. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai, Gaurnitananda Ki Jai, Gaurnitananda Ki Jai.